Skull Rock Podcast is brought to you by the generosity of the following companies. Sure, sound extraordinary. To podcasters, recording musicians, and streamers who are looking for studio quality audio at home or on the road, the Sure MV7 Podcast Kit is a premium all-in-one solution inspired by the legendary Shure SM7B and is designed to address the versatility required by modern creators. For more on the Shure MV7 podcast kit, visit shure.com, S-H-U-R-E.com, or click the link in our show notes. Shure, sound extraordinary. And by The Old Mill Press, publishing beautifully crafted books that illuminate our world. To learn more, visit theoldmillpress.com. And by listeners like you. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, Al John Goh and Dave Bossert. Happy New Year. It's Al John. And it's Dave Bossert. And uh, we're still on vacation, but we're going <laughs> to run a uh, special show from the Skull Rock Podcast vault with John Musker uh, talking about one of his many projects. I love it. Enjoy. Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. Al John, we are back once again with one of the dynamic pistons of the renaissance of animation, uh, the renaissance of Disney animation, I should say. We were fortunate to have uh, producer-director John Musker back with us again. John, welcome back to the show. And let me ask you, how was the green room? You spent a week there. The green room was great. The ants crawling across my face, it didn't bother me that much. And those little, those little fuzzy, the, I don't know if they're moles or they're ground squirrels or what, but that kind of kept me awake a few, uh, you know, at night. So I, I, I'm used to being sleep deprived anyway, because I stay up late normally. So it really was almost like being home in the company of, um, all right. Well, rice. Yeah. Let, let, listen, we're going to fumigate it again. I mean, okay, we, did, we right. did it after Don Hahn spent yeah, three get weeks the big in yellow it. tent with yeah. the blue stripes. And I think it'd be good. <laughs> there we go. But anyway, I, I'm so glad you're, you're able to come back and talk with us. Uh, I wanted to, to really focus this episode on Aladdin because as you well know, uh, Aladdin, uh, this year is the 30th anniversary uh, of Aladdin. Uh, and we're, we're uh, talking about the animated one, right? The, the animated oh, one, right. not not the stage yeah. production. No, not, no, no. Not the live action one. Not, nah, the, live not action. the live action one either. Not, not no. the TV series either. Right? No, not no. even the TV series. We're we're talking about the the mothership, the <laughs> the original, the 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 first uh, uh, big Ooh, Aladdin. Spawned all these other things. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So not that we were, yeah. Okay. So let me ask you this: you, uh, you, you, your, your first big directing gig was the Great Mouse Detective, uh, yeah. and that was during a tenuous time at the studio. Yeah. Uh, and and once you were done with that, uh, there was new management that came in, uh, and you. Well, and, no, all the new management came in in the early days of that project. So yes, question: If we were even gonna. Finish it. Even liked it. We had to pitch the movie to uh, Michael and Jeffrey, and it could be that even though we've been working on it for three years, it might all go out the window. Fortunately, they liked it. Although now I hear Jeffrey telling the story that he walked out of the pitch meeting with Mike and said, "Well, what are we going to do? We got nothing for these guys to do. I mean, we could, you know, if we want them to do something." Like that. <laughs> so, although Michael, when we had pitched it to him, he liked it, and he said, "Okay, you got the adventure. You got this. If you can make us cry, it's the home run of all time." 
So I'm like, okay, if we got to make somebody cry, it'll be the home run of all time. Okay. These, were, these were words I had never heard from Ron Miller, yeah. the home run of all time and things. I knew that, you know, once again, we were in a whole different universe. But, 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 but once, once the great mouse detective was done, you, you and you and uh, your directing partner, Ron Clemens, uh, went on to do The Little Mermaid, which which really, you know, I think everybody generally agrees that The Little Mermaid, American Tale, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit are kind of the the the, the three, the, the trifecta that sort of kicked off the uh, renaissance of Disney animation. Yeah, I, I think there, there's some truth in that. We, um, yes, we, yeah, Ron pitched Little Mermaid at a gong show, and it was gonged initially, and then Fortunately, they read his little two-page treatment and liked it and it got ungonged and it went through a slightly tortured early development stage. But yes, then we we I co-wrote and directed. You didn't give any didn't give me any writing credits at the beginning, Dave. I'm gonna to have to talk uh, to my I'm agent sorry. and lawyer. If only I had an agent and a lawyer. My but, apologies. No, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> um, but we we did co-write that one. Um so yeah, so I, Ron invited me to write the script with him. He had pitched the idea and uh he had written another script and and I had done writing on Great Mouse. And so we did. So we wrote that. Jeffrey loved the script. And, you know, but, you know, the, getting it to the screen, you know, there was lots of this and that. But it came out and, yes, it was, it helped, it kind of stood on the shoulders somewhat of Roger Rabbit in terms of broadening the audience. Yeah. But it broke some of the stigmas of, you know, this is only for little kids. And, you know, you could be an adult and see it and enjoy it. You could be a dating couple and not be embarrassed or fight through your embarrassment to go to the theater and then say, hey, that was actually pretty good. Um, so that, that was all to the good. So now the movie, and actually in the very closing days of Little Mermaid, they, uh, tried to get us to direct Beauty and the Beast. And, uh, right, right. And, uh, we, we declined. We were so burned out from doing Mermaid. We were, the idea of getting on the merry-go-round again didn't seem appealing to us. That didn't stop them from trying to get us to a story meeting down in Florida when we were doing, we were there for the Little Mermaid junket, where we, I feel very fortunate now that we went to that meeting because we were trying to ditch that meeting. We had a guy with the plaid vest and we're at Disney world, you know, and he's like, okay, gentlemen, now we have Mr. Klatsenberg insists that you must be at this meeting. And we're like, can't we just, why don't we just go on uh, big thunder again or something? You know? and, so, uh, and he said, no, you must, we must be, I'm sorry. We must be there by 10 o'clock. So anyway, we, we went to the meeting and that was the famous meeting and Dick Purdy was at the meeting and Don, but that was the meeting with Howard and, and when Wolverton was there where Howard laid out his vision for the whole revamp of Beauty and the Beauty, Beast. And Beauty and the Beast. I was right. a fly on the wall there for that. And I even, you know, brought up a little quibble that Howard Cookie, don't bother me with details, you know, on, on something. And, uh, but it was amazing. Howard, you know, Howard said she likes to read books. And and then why, instead of Gaston being the spot that he was in the other version, he should be a jock. He should be a hunter. He should have antlers on the wall. Da, 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 da. And he just, and objects should sing and talk. They don't, they shouldn't be mute. And uh, anyway, so that, so that went its way without us. And so in the meantime, we thought we were going to work. We, they wanted us to do another movie. And we had an idea for a movie in mind. Uh, it was based on a children's book that we really liked. It was called We're Back. And it yeah. was, and, uh, and so we pitched, we said to Charlie Fink, that's who Charlie Fink was the head of development at that time, kind of the Sammy Glick of animation sort of. And he, uh, he researched it and he said, sorry, guys, the rights are taken. It's Steven Spielberg's son's favorite book. So he bought the rights to it and they're going to do it. Wow. Like, no, you got to be kidding me. And in fact, they did it. And we don't like the version that was done. We think they, they messed up that book. But anyway, it wasn't what we were going to do. But so we couldn't do that. Okay, so what could we do? So they said, uh, we have some projects in-house. Here's three ideas. See if any of these capture your fancy. 
One of them is a, a musical animated version of Swan Lake. And we thought that seemed a little bit too much like Little Mermaid. So we said no. And then they said, we've got this other thing. It involves lions in Africa. And we were like, who's going to go see a movie? What idiot's going to go see a movie about lions <laughs> in Africa? I mean, so we said no to that one too. Uh, but then the third one that, that was on their list was this movie called Aladdin. And it was on the list because Howard, it had been in development for a while at that point because Howard, as part of his deal, Howard Ashman, the great lyricist, composer, idea man, director, et cetera, uh, as part of his deal with Disney, I think he had a multi-picture deal, including a live action film, a live action film that he did an early, at least was developing, was I, Tina. It turned into I, Tina. He wanted to do that as a live action film, the biography of yeah. uh, Tina Turner. But, um, but his sort of third animation or his second animation project, whatever, it was uh, he wanted, and it's possible that Howard actually originally thought he might even direct it, we think. Uh, we, he's not around to ask, but that was some of our impression that he didn't really show it to us what he was doing when he first developed it. It wasn't like, here, what do you guys think? He was, he developed it and he had it and he pitched it to the development people. By the time we got there, they had somewhat abandoned Howard's version. They, Howard's version, Howard wrote a 40 page treatment. He wrote, with Alan, they wrote about five or six songs. Uh, it was very much in the vein of a Hope Crosby musical. I don't know how old your audience is, if they know either of those people. Uh, but uh, Bing Crosby. So it, it was it was like a uh, a, a road show, a, a road yeah. pair, like a buddy road. road it was a very a very breezy comedy, talk to the camera, light, fun romp. It was a romp, and uh, and it was a kind of an Arabian pastiche. It was by no means ever thought of as this is some kind of documentary uh, telling of uh, a story. You know, it was more of a, a pastiche, yeah. and so um, so that was Howard's tone. Now. I think Jeffrey had his own sense of what he could see in an Arabian night story. So I think he was bumping up against several things in Howard's original version. The genie was based on Fats Waller, the great jazz pianist and composer sure. who did, you know, the Viper's Dragon and Feast of Bag and Ain't Misbehaving and the Honeysuckle Waltz and all that. Um, he, uh, and I, th and he was African-American and uh, they didn't, the studio was like, wow, they didn't kind of get that. They, the, the sort of campy tone of Howard's thing, they just weren't with, and various things. So they had they had tried to develop a script out that they weren't liking it, and so I think they abandoned Howard's treatments, and they hired Linda Wolverton, among other people, to write a version that was maybe a little bit more like The Thief of Baghdad, which Disney, I think, actually had the remake rights to at one point. So it was a more, more somewhat a more serious, it was certainly a fantasy, but it was in that vein. Let me sure. let me ask you this real quick though. Uh, 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 Richard Williams, after he did Who Framed yeah. Roger Rabbit, was working right. on Thief and the Cobbler. Do you right. think that there was anything going on there where Jeffrey wanted to kind of you know no, jam no, in Aladdin or no? I don't think Jeffrey knew anything about the Williams version. I think he knew absolutely zero about. No, I knew about it actually. You know when I one of the things after I when I left Cal Arts in that little space between I mean when I left Northwestern, my friend, my best friend and I who we did the movies with. We did a three-week trip to, to Britain in the wintertime. And we and when we got to London, I called called the Richard Williams studio. And I said, hey, can we combine? I talked to the reception. He said, oh, I suppose so. And so we got this tour of, you know, his great, the house in Soho Square. And I think we saw Williams standing on the landing. But we talked to people who now, I think, were Tony White and people like that who were animators at the time for Williams. And I asked what was going on because they had all these big brochures about uh, Nazardin and the Cobbler and the Thief. It kept changing names. But... It had been in work for a number of years, even at that point. This is 19, January of 1975. And I said, well, how's the movie going? You know, I was really excited about it. And they said, well, uh, 
Dick has uh, thrown out the story again. So we're sort of back to zero. We're kind of starting over. And I was like, really? Wow, you had all this stuff in your you're back to, you're starting over? Wow, well, is this the way it's done? Okay. Anyway, so I saw a few images, but they didn't, but no, even when we were doing it, I never really thought about the Williams version that I had seen little tiny glimpses of here and there. I didn't really. And, uh, but who knows? I mean, it was in the zeitgeist and some people, I, you know, may have seen some images, may have had some indirect influence a little bit, but not so enough from Jeffrey. I don't think he had any idea. And, and just so our listeners uh, know, The Thief and the Cobbler was a film that Richard Williams had in production for something like 25 years. Uh, yes. be, and, and then it was eventually taken away from him by a completion bond company and finished. Yeah, uh, he, was, he, was his, he was a terrible businessman, but he was a great artist. And so he got into a situation where they could do that. And they did. The insurance people sort of took it away from him because it looked like it would never be done. And very likely it might not have ever been done. Right, so, right. Uh, um, and it's a bunch of parts. It doesn't, I, some people disagree, you know, it's got amazing set pieces, but holding together as a film. And again, the version that was released wasn't Williams version, but even sure. if you tape together Williams sequences, it's a question whether or not that could really work as a film, but as a, Two minute extravaganza. It was amazingly, brilliantly wonderful. So, uh, so anyway, so yeah, so we, but we we were intrigued by the idea of doing an Arabian Nights fantasy. We liked fairy tales. We liked the Arabian Nights. We liked Alem. We liked Alibaba. We liked Popeye when we did those things, you know. And uh, um, so we said yes to that. And so we wound up reading all the different scripts we've been generating, including Linda Wolverton's, including Howard's original treatment. We heard the music and all that. And we sort of came with our own version, borrowing the elements that we liked from certain things and leaving other things behind. And it was all our own choices that we made pretty much. So we, in Howard's version, and which is was resurrected for the stage version, Howard was a, a group of uh, street performers. I mean, uh, Aladdin was part of a group of street performers. Aladdin, Babcock, Omar Aladdin, Babcock, Kasim. I can't remember the order of them, but he had a number where they all kind of did a very razzmatazz number. Um, they performed in the street. He had a mother. He was kind of an irresponsible guy. He, he did a kind of a Jack and the Beanstalk thing where he kind of, in effect, sold the family cow for nothing. And, uh, and they're at the edge of poverty's door. And he, he was kind of, a, you know, he made mistakes. He was a kid. And so he sang this beautiful song to his mother called Proud of Your Boy. Someday, Mom, I'm going to make you proud of your boy. Great ballad. And uh, in Howard's version, there was a the sultan, there was a sultan and there was a vizier uh, called the wazir, I think. And um, the wazir had a parrot named Sinbad. And uh, the, um, but the princess in that was a spoiled princess. She was a rich girl, materialistic, hedonistic. She only cared about, you know, her nails and that kind of thing. And the real love interest in Howard's version was this sort of tomboyish girl that tagged along with the street performers, a little bit more like in West Side Story, that girl that kind of, hung around there. So that's, that was in Howard's version. Well, when we got to it, we did feel like, no, we, we like the idea of the poor kid falling in love with the rich girl and trying to rescue her that she's got issues and that, and that, and that he has issues and she has issues and they kind of help each other out with, you know, dealing with that. We, that was appealing to us. We didn't like as many human characters as there were in Howard's nor as in Linda Wolverton's Linda Wolverton's uh, Aladdin had, an older mentor, a man named Abu. And we said, what if Abu was a monkey? <laughs> and we, and the princess had a handmaiden, you know, who was her confidant and all that. And we just said, what if the handmaiden was a tiger? So we sort of took human characters and made them into animals. 
And it was also our concept, uh, We because Howard had his genie, and we thought, okay, the African-American genie is a no-go for reasons they don't... It wasn't because he was African-American so much, but there are side issues. Anyway, we thought... We were inspired a bit by uh, Jerry Reese's work on Back to Neverland, which was the thing he did for the theme parks, which had Robin Williams in it as a tourist. And Jerry was influenced by, it all goes full circle, Chuck Jones' Duck Amok, where Daffy Duck sort of pulls, you know, it gets pulled into this drawn world and all sorts of things happen to him and there's transformation. So Back to Neverland, Robin Williams like is one of the lost boys. So Robin, the kind of real Robin arguably gets pulled into this animated world and there are these quick transformations and he's thrown into these situations, but there are these lightning quick changes. And we thought that's cool. And we thought with any animated film that Ron and I have done, even as we've gotten into CG and other things, we're always looking for, is there some way to exploit the fact that it's animated and it is not live action to use that in the telling of the story that really celebrates its animatedness. So building it around a genie who's a shapeshifter with the voice of Robin Williams, we thought, Oh, that would be so much fun to animate and he could go to town and, you know, so we wrote, so when we developed it, we had it in mind that we wanted Robin Williams for the genie, but we didn't know if we could get him. We, so, but we wrote the script with Robin in mind. We did the development with Robin in mind. Finally, as we were getting to work on the film, Robin was in the middle of hook. And even, curse to us, we discovered he was doing a voice in Ferngully already by that point, I think. You know, and I think that was going to come out before. So we're like, oh, my God, no, that's kind of, you know, that's going to wreck this. But we thought, well... It's going to be out before this, and he's not really doing the same thing as we understood it, so he can't quite be doing what we want to do with him. So anyway, and we pitched, we did pitch it all even to Howard. Now Howard, we so we told Howard that you know we were resurrect. So we pitched our version of it. They went along with our version, which included resurrecting some of Howard's songs and the idea of this hipster genie, the tone of this romp. Uh, we borrowed a bunch of stuff from Howard, and they were like okay, guardedly okay, but they were okay with that. And so we arranged to meet with, we talked with Howard and we were going to fly back to meet with Howard in uh, New York, you know, where he was. We hadn't really seen him since Little Mermaid had come out. And then, so when I spoke with him on the phone, this is in the summer of 1990. So well, you guys, you guys should know before you come out that uh, I've been ill. And I, I was like, well, how ill? And he said, pretty ill. And that's all he said. He said, talk to Nancy Paramount. Okay. I don't really want to go to Talk to her. She knows all the details. She'll give you all the details and she'll let you know. But when you come out and whatever you do, don't tell Donners, the producer of the movie. Peter Schneider had assigned Donners to had worked with on uh, Back to Neverland. I really right. Yeah. And was, uh, uh, I think by that point, maybe he had done the first Roger Rabbit short with Rob, I think, Tommy Trouble. I think he'd produced that one, I think. And uh, so anyway, he thought he would be a good fit with us. So Don was our producer. But Howard didn't want Don to know about his situation. You, know, you can't tell him. And, we, and I said, okay, we won't tell him. So we did. Do you know why? Do you know why he didn't want to know? I think he just didn't want, he, he wanted hardly anybody to know. And I think he was hoping to just, I think it was the feeling, I think it might've been the feeling that A, will he be so debilitated? He can't do it. I think that was the main reason that they wouldn't have confidence in him. And, and that, and also just, is it a thing, you know, it's like a bigger trumpeting that he's gay, which isn't even in those days. And it's, you know, Early 90s, yeah. even then, it was a different thing back then. Sure, sure. And AIDS had a stigma, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, it, it, was, it, it, it was the early days of the AIDS epidemic. It was the early days of all that. Yeah. So, so, even with Howard, I remember saying to him on the phone, I'm like, you know, they're developing these drugs and these treatments, and don't you think? And he was like, 
I don't think so. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, he's just really resigned to this. There's got to be some way out of this. But uh, so we then went back, you know, we, so I pitched out to, to Howard over the phone, the idea of Robin as the genie and, and Howard knew Robin. Howard, when he went to his undergrad, I think he was in Vermont, like at Bennington or something. And I think one of his theater classmates there was uh, Mallory, the first wife of Robin Williams, then perhaps girlfriend of Robin. I think Robin was going to, let's uh, go back there, not William and Mary, I don't know, it's at school in the, in the mountains there. And you would know it. It's in New York. Bates or no? No, it's, uh, it's like where Christopher Lee went to school. Do you know where that is? I don't know. No, I don't know. Okay. Well, I, I'm thinking of schools in uh, like uh, uh, Bowdoin or, you know. It was like, well, it's sort of like William and Mary, but it's not William. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. so he, so anyway, so, so, so Howard knew Robin. So we pitched, so I pitched it to Howard. I said, you know, Robin does these personas. So I, I think he can perform your song. One of his personas will be this sort of hipster. So he can do the number still relatively as written. And yet, you know, he'll, he'll do other things too. And so Howard, again, kind of guardedly, okay, I get it. Yeah. Okay. He bought into that enough. You know, he was a little worried, but basically he bought into it. So we went back to meet Howard and in, in Alan in the fall of 1990. Uh, at that point, I don't think we had written our script. We, we had started writing a treatment and all that sort of thing. I still remember we, we went to the U.S. Open that year because we were in New York in the fall. So we, I saw John McEnroe play in the U.S. Open in 1990 <laughs> in the very, the very top row while we were in New York. But anyway, so we drove up to Howard's place, which is sort of in the Hudson River Valley, I think. Yeah, so uh, up towards the Catskills. Yeah, toward the Catskills. And so, yeah. and so already, yeah, he was he he looked like a ghost when we saw him. We were shocked. You know, he, he had lost a lot of weight. He was drawn. His eye sockets were kind of hollow. And weirdly enough, when we first got there to his house, he was bleeding. He, he had he had fallen because his balance was getting a little bad even. And he had gashed his arm on a glass coffee table that was in his house there. And, and here's this AIDS guy who's bleeding, you know, and we were like, wow, this is kind of crazy. Anyway, but he, by that point, he was working on Beauty and the Beast more fully and all that and struggling because he wasn't happy with the early direction of Beauty and the Beast, some things that were going on. He was clashing with some of the creative people on that thing. And, uh, which, and they, that was, that was the team before, uh, uh, Kirk and Gary and Don. No, no, it was Kirk and Gary. Uh, oh, it was still, it was Kirk and Gary. No, Howard point. had nothing to do with the other team. The other team, uh, when Howard came in, that was the last meeting that Dick Purdom ever had on the movie, I think, because then they okay. went, the, the, Dick Purdom went away, Kirk and Gary came in and, but I, but I think particularly Kirk, just Howard clashed with Kirk and Kirk has drawn funny characters about that, but, Howard didn't, there were things that I think Kirk perhaps was maybe a little impolitic in dismissing some of Howard's ideas, perhaps. Yeah. Because Howard wanted a, a kid, you know, and Kirk always says, Eddie Munster, he wanted him, we wanted to see the beast as <laughs> Munster. We're going to laugh, we're going to laugh. And Howard just was furious because he was like, he wasn't picturing Eddie Munster. And I think he felt like you could have a beast who was introduced as a kid, who was a bratty kid, who then, you know, becomes this incorrigible adult. But uh, Kirk thought it was unworkable. And anyway, so how, so he just, Howard was saying things to us, you know, that indicated that he and Kirk were like uh, oil and water a little bit. So like, oh, boy. Okay, I hope that works out. Um, so anyway, though, so Howard, we explained the idea to him, and Howard was good to go, game to go, heard the pitch of the idea. So he and Alan began writing music. So the, the two, so, and we still had Proud of Your Boy. We had Arabian Nights, which was sort of a, a threaded thing. I think in Howard's version, the, there was a genie of the ring. Cause in some of the Aladdin stories, there's multiple genies. And I think Howard used that idea, but we didn't want to do that. We wanted to do just one genie, but we thought 
we'll have him be the narrator of the story. So you'll introduce him as a narrator, which is why Robin Williams does the voice of the narrator. Sure. But the idea of him being the genie went away through the course of production because we cut some reprises, particularly at the end of the movie where it was revealed. We had to go really short there. We had to take that idea out kind of late in the game. So you know, obviously someone would say, why do you have Robin Williams? Now, you could say it was a way of getting Robin Williams into the movie early. You know, it was maybe a good idea, but we, uh, it wasn't consciously thought of that way. So, um, so anyway, we, so Howard wrote the first song that he and Alan wrote in our new version was the Prince Ali song. So they wrote that version while we were back. I think, uh, I think at that point we had written the script. Ron would remember this better than I, I, I would, but we, uh, and it was a great, so we flew back to New York to hear the song. So we came back, I think like in December that year, a few months later. And again, Howard had declined somewhat. And, uh, but they, at Howard's house, you know, Alan brought his Farfisa organ and everything and played, you know, uh, Prince Ali. And, and he sang it about Howard's uh, performance thing had, you know, declined enough that he couldn't really, normally it would have been a Howard song, but he couldn't, he didn't have the energy to do that. So, uh, and it was great. We loved the song. We brought it back and we boarded it. There was another new song that he wrote um, called Humiliate the Boy. And I think they performed it there too, which was in our earlier structure of the story, um, Jafar takes away all the land's wishes. He gets a hold of the land. In our earlier version of the story, the land had multiple wishes. There weren't just three wishes. He could wish for as many things he wanted. So that enabled us to do Prince Ali because he could wish for a million things and he could get them all. And, uh, so Jafar, though, once he gets hold of the lamp, takes them away kind of in a public display in this musical soft shoe number. It was really kind of a villainous soft shoe, a very Cyril Richard, the villain in, you know, uh, the Mary Martin Captain Hook villain in the uh, Peter Pan musical that Howard loved so much and that we grew up on on television, uh, Comden and Green and Jules Stone, who wrote that. Um, anyway, it, it, but he very sadistically was peeling away all of the props of Aladdin's Prince Alinus, and he took away his clothes and he took away his voice and he made birds come out of his mouth and he did all this stuff. And it, you could construe it that Howard, it was basically a humiliationist guy that was not unlike the way Howard himself was being humiliated by AIDS. I mean, it was right. the destruction of someone who was sort of on top of the world and bit by bit had every dignity taken away from him. And the villain was doing that. And it was a really witty, fun song. So we storyboarded that song. So we had a whole team of board artists Working, who worked on that version, uh, including Don Yippes, a great tall Dutchman who brought a lot of great stuff on Jafar, Ed Gombert, uh, Rebecca Reese, Daryl Rooney, Kevin Lima, boarded Humiliate the Boy, uh, Roger Allers boarded, actually Roger came in more on the rescue team when we, we had trouble. I don't think he boarded on the first version. Anyway, so we put that version together and our concept of Aladdin in that version was that he was kind of a Michael J. Fox wheeler dealer, kind of a fast talker and uh, a little bit maybe scrawny, but, uh, but, you know, could get out of any jam by his wittiness and, and that sort of thing. So that was the version that we put together on story reels and uh, showed to Jeffrey Katzenberg in right around this time of year. It was almost literally, so that it was in uh, 1991. What are we in? We're in 2022. So that makes it 31 yeah. years ago. That 31, yeah, 31 years ago. Maybe, maybe practically to the day. Actually, it was in April, I think. So in, in a few weeks, it'll be an exact thing. Of course, we just passed, the unfortunately, the anniversary of Howard Ashman died on uh, yes. March 14th in 1991. So, yeah. so he had died, and we were showing this thing to Jeffrey a few weeks after Howard had died. You know, it was a terrible time. Anyway, so we 
showed it to Jeffrey. The whole movie was up on reels. It was long. Um, we showed it with Donners. We were in kind of an empty screening room. Uh, and I think we were still in the old animation building at that point, I think, in 1991, and like 3E12 or something. And so we showed it to Jeffrey. And he doesn't have a whole lot of comments. And this is the same Jeffrey who, when we first showed him Great Mouse Detective, the first time we had showed it to him, we had only gotten 10 minutes into it, and he stopped the projector. And he uh, said, no, wait a minute. We're 10 minutes in, and I don't know who I'm supposed to care about. I don't know this, I don't know that. I'm not looking at another frame of this thing until you guys answer those questions and solve those problems for me. So we were like, what? <laughs> so we, on that, on Great Mouse, we had to go back and rework the first 10 minutes. We put more of a teaser opening to it. And Bernie was very sanguine about it and just like, hey, there's more than one way to skin a cat. We're going to figure this out. And we did it, and Jeffrey bought off on it. So anyway, so we're showing to Jeffrey here now, Aladdin, uh, with some Robin animation in it, with some Robin voice. I, I was going to ask you that question. Yeah. Uh, during the during this whole part of developing Aladdin, when did Eric Goldberg come on? And and I understand Eric took like a, a piece of dialogue of of, uh, yeah. of Robin from a movie he had done and animated the genie, yeah. essentially. Yeah, he... We had this idea to do Robin. And so, again, Charlie Fink was our in intermediary, but they had been trying to woo Eric Goldberg to come to work at the Disney studio. And at that point, Eric Goldberg had his own studio that I think he was partnered with in London that did commercial called Pizzazz Pictures. Yeah, it was a commercial place. It was a commercial house. Yeah. We And I knew Eric's work. He visited back and forth, and I knew Eric a little bit, and I knew his reel, and I loved his reel. I knew his stuff, and I just thought... And so Charlie Fink, I think, came to us one day and said would you guys consider working with Eric Goldberg? And we said, consider it, sure. And, and and I think, I believe it was our idea. We said, you know, we think he could do the genie for us, you know? And uh, so he went back to Eric and person. We had no idea how Eric would react. We didn't know that Eric was looking for an escape from London because the stress and strain of trying to have your own, keep your own studio afloat, you know, there's the creative part, but there's the business part that was just grinding him into, you know, pulp. Yeah. And so he leapt at the chance to come back and do Robin Williams, you know, in, in cartoony animation on a Disney feature. And he had, you know, tried to get into Disney years before and they wouldn't hire him. He'd been turned down by Disney years before. I don't think we knew that at the time. Anyway, but we loved Eric's stuff. We knew his stuff. So it turned out, yes, he was willing to come back. So we, but yeah, we didn't have Robin locked up. And so we wanted to do a sales pitch. We had to first do a sales pitch to Jeffrey because Jeffrey wasn't sure about the whole Robin idea. We had to sell Jeffrey on the idea. So Eric took some animation. He took some tracks. I think there was an HBO special that Robin had done. And I think there was a comedy album. And I, Eric can tell you more specifically which was which, because you certainly hear an audience reacting on this test yeah. animation of the genie. So he did one of them, which was very funny, where he uh, he said, uh, you know, I want to talk today about the uh, serious subject of schizophrenia. No, you don't. Yes, you do. No, you don't. You know, did it back and forth. So. Eric had the genie grow a second head. And, and then even with Robin's original comedy bit, he did a sound that sounded like taping right, you know, and like a tape, real, real tape. And so, so Eric had the genie's head turn into a real, real tape recorder. He did two tests. He did one, that was the second test he did that looked more like the genie you see today. He did one before that, that was kind of a, a portly genie and, and slightly looked a little bit more like a human Robin. And we didn't like that as much as we felt like that was part of, what we felt was the iconic genie was the mesomorphic genie because he had power and we wanted him to feel powerful and not kind of dumpy in a way. So, so we said, we think he's in neutral. He should have a big barrel chest and a thin waist because he's a powerful dude. And that's part of the storyline. So Eric kind of redesigned him to our uh, ask about that. 
So anyway, Eric did this animation, showed it to Jeffrey, and Jeffrey came around. He said, well, now we've got to get Robin in to look at this stuff. So while Robin was working, I think at that point, on Hook, certainly he was working on Hook later when we, we did that. He might have been working still on toys the first time he came in, because I think his hair was dyed blonde, because it was blonde in toys, I think. He came in, you know, after hours or something. We were, we had a bunch of storyboards. We showed him the, the, the Genie Simon storyboard. We showed him Derek's test animation. I think he came in with Marsha, his wife at the time, you know, and uh, uh, and he loved it. And he just said, yeah, just got to figure out how, how we can do this. But yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm in. I'm all for it. Now, as we then eventually, then we were recorded, Robin. All this time, Robin never signed a contract. The whole time he did the part, he had never signed a contract. Uh. They sort of agreed to this and that. And there was a point where the negotiations were going too well after we had animated him and, you know, worked with him for six months or a year or something. Jeffrey came to us. Okay, guys, who's your second choice for the genie? You know, <laughs> and we said, our second choice? Yeah, yeah, who's your second choice? We don't have a second So we kind of said, oh, well, maybe Steve Martin or John Candy, but none of them are Robin. This is, we tailored this to Robin. This is, the, it's all one thing. we got to get Robin. And he just... Okay, he looked kind of grim like that. Isn't in it from a negotiating point of view? I, we just gave him nothing to play with, you know. And he couldn't throw anything back at him, so he completely uh, undermined his position. But uh, but it was true. So they they seemingly got past those hurdles because Robin continued to record, record all the way till the end of the movie. It was only, and I don't think even to the end of the movie he had ever signed a contract, possibly. Um, and at the end of the movie, that developed into some problems because I think he. He, what we heard on the street was he felt that Disney had reneged on some things they'd agreed to on paper, which was that uh, they wouldn't use his name for fast food ads and things like that. And yeah, yeah. That they had. I don't know if they ever had or not, but we felt that maybe Robin was upset too because, you know, the movie, and he and he said, I'm not going to promote the movie. And, and you, if you put my, and you can put my name in the credits, but you have to put it the same size as everybody else. You can't, and I have to, if you do any advertising for the movie, I, you can only use, the proportion of the ad that's me can only be the same as the proportion that I'm in the movie. And there were all these, you know, things to yeah. meter it out. And they agreed to all those things, I think. You know, they said, yes, we'll do that, we'll do that. And we know you won't do any promotion for the movie. We still want you, yada, yada. But uh, but then when the movie was released, and Robin didn't want to do any promotion for the movie because of his agreement, um, Toys was coming out at that nearly at that same time. And Toys, uh, he would go on talk shows to talk about Toys on The Tonight Show. And they'd want to talk about Aladdin. You know? yeah. So he'd get dragged, he'd get ambushed and hijacked in these conversations. And he was gracious about it, he would do it. But it wasn't, I think he had a piece of toys. He had a percentage of toys and he didn't have that kind of deal for Aladdin. So I think ultimately Aladdin was, you know, infinitely more successful than toys was from a box office point of view. Sure. Creative issues. But uh, so, yeah, that's what happened. But in the meantime, with Robin, we went up to, we did our first recording session up in Mill Valley. He lived up, he lived in Mill Valley. We went to Skywalker Ranch. Our first session, Susan Blanchard, bless her soul, drove the storyboards up in a van. Up to, you know, <laughs> pre, the pre-digital age, you know, so literally pin storyboards. She drove up the five to San Francisco. And, uh, and so we pitched the boards from there. We recorded up there. Eric was in the room with Robin. It was one of those big rooms at Skywalker. It was a little crazy. It was that big a room. And, uh, and he did his introduction, mainly his introduction, but he, you know, we had written it with Robin in mind. So we had him shifting personas in a general way, not any specific personalities. We just had him kind of shifting personas, but they weren't tied to any specific actors or anything. But of course, that's what Robin does. So he did, you know, we, I, I stole this line when I was writing it 
from this friend of mine who used to always joke around because he worked WGN, the guy that I made those super eight movies with. They ran wrestling there, and there was a guy, a wrestler, handsome Johnny Valiant. Oh, yeah. and handsome Johnny Valiant <laughs> had a run of guff back in the day where he would say, "I am the often imitated, never duplicated." You know, and and uh, he said, "You know, this guy's got a neck like a stack of nines and all this." And he had this whole run of uh, running down his opponent. So I stole Johnny Valiant's line for you know uh, the often imitated, never duplicated. That came from Johnny Valiant. But uh, so, but when Robin did it, he did it as Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, do you ever do you ever impressive or whatever? You know? No, he did often imitated like Senior Wentz said, often imitated but never duplicated. You know, he did Senior Wentz's for that. It was a ventriloquist of the day that no one under the age of sixty will know. Sure. Spanish, but anyway, so he did all these things. So as we got into the animation, so anyway, he performed it as we wrote it about seven or eight times. And it was great. And he did it as it was written for him. But then he's, and then we said, okay, now you can, yeah, let it go. You can start throwing things in. So he did about another seven or eight takes. We was winging it and it was getting longer, you know, but Robin was good. He knew what the story point of the scene was now. And so even as he did improvs, he, he was improving in a way that would support the story, which was great. Sure. And then we said, man, this is great. We got all these takes. We probably had 15 takes. At the so let me just try a couple more. So we wound up doing about 10 more takes. So we had 25 takes of his first introduction, each of which was very different from the other one, ultimately. And, and our technique, as it had been all through those years, when we would do a voice session, the actor's lines were always transcribed. They were literally, we had a transcriber. They wrote down everything anybody said, even if they weren't improvising. So you had the takes listed. This is before the digital age. You know, we now you have an avenue, you've got them stacked up, and the assistant editor has here's here's your 10 takes of that line. We didn't have that back then, but we did have a transcript that showed everything. And we had cassette tapes and we listened to every single thing you said again. So basically, Eric Goldberg, Ron, and I would listen to everything that Robin did after the session. And out of that, we would rebuild the scene. We would circle the things we liked. And we listened independently from each other, even. Where we could we listen together, but a lot of times it wasn't possible. So we'd listen at home at night and circle text and come back and compare notes. And sometimes Eric would find things that we didn't even realize were there. Like he said, oh, you, we got to use this thing. Remember when Robin did it? I said, I don't remember it exactly. And he said, remember when he said, oh, yeah, right. He was accusing uh, he was accusing Aladdin of being a liar. He said, oh, yeah, right. Uh-huh. Like his nose was growing like Aladdin. But so when we're reading the transcript, it says, oh, yeah, right. Makes a noise. And so we, we, and even though we were hearing the tape, boop, we didn't realize he was imitating Pinocchio. But Eric said, don't you remember that's what he does? Like, oh, yeah, that's great. So Eric found some of those nuggets that we might have missed. But anyway, out of those, we constructed something. We worked with H. Lee Peterson, our editor, to kind of construct a new version. We whittled it down. We wrote new intros and outros and material. And that's how those things got. And we you know, kind of kept trimming it down. And, uh, and that's how the part was sort of built, kind of. And uh, uh, it was a crazy process. <laughs> Let me ask you this question. Uh, did you ever uh, feel like some of the uh, voice impersonations of celebrities like Arnold and, and things like Stallone and, and, and whatnot, did you ever feel like those could get dated or did we it not matter? About, yeah, we were concerned about that initially. And certainly our original intent was even though he was doing those things, we were thinking, well, the visual is going to be more gen- generalized. He's doing those things, but he'll turn into something. But He's not going to look like those people. But Eric Goldberg, again, said to us, guys, you've got to do, we've got to do it. He's there. It's there. Yeah. And it's an anachronism, you know, it is already, but it's just, it's what makes the joke and da, 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 da. And so he pulled us along with him and, and he talked about Hirschfeld. I mean, I knew Hirschfeld's caricature. I'm a caricaturist, but Eric, you know, grew up in Cherry Hill, New Jersey and, you know, read the New York Times and all that. And, uh, 
uh, loved Hirschfeld's work, and he just felt that there was a calligraphic element to Al Hirschfeld, the great New York Times caricaturist work, that felt kind of Arabic in its swoopy lines and felt like Arabic calligraphy. Yeah. And, and we agreed with him, yes. So Eric made us more liberal. So we started breaking more rules that we thought were going to be rules. The rules, so he he, he looked like senior Francis, and he looked like a quasi, he, even that first thing, because one of the first things I mean, he didn't exactly look like Arnold. We didn't go that far. We were, eventually he did look just like Jack Nicholson. He looked just like Ronnie Dangerfield, but because that was the first thing I mean, he looked like a big, strong guy who seemed kind of like Arnold, but he had a different skin and different hair or something. Yeah. We, we hadn't quite gotten pulled completely over to the dark side. But I do remember your friend and mine, Ted Kiersey. Yes. Who, who was really down on what we were doing. And uh, he was like, this is so totally wrong. You are taking Disney down the wrong path. This is, uh, you're doing a Saturday Night Live sketch. It's going to date itself. It's not going to be, it's not going to last. And this is, you are really making a terrible mistake. And we knew that that was one way of thinking. And even with other things we were doing too, we did all sorts of risky things. We broke the fourth wall. We had the genie turn to the camera as they did in the Bob Hope and Crosby things sure. because of the tone of those things. And we're doing the side to the audience. We had the genie reading the script for the movie and acknowledged that there was a script. I mean, it, you know, it was cartoonier, but we felt that there was a sincerity despite that, that, that Aladdin's problem was real that the genie's relationship with the land was real, that the genie in a way was Robin, that he was like, you trapped Robin Williams in a lamp for a thousand years and he comes out and he's just got all this pent up stuff. And even though he's going to be doing references that even at the time, Sarah Duran, our head of post-production, you know, she's like, who's that weird looking guy that he turns into? And we're like, uh, Sarah, that's, that's Ed Sullivan. You know, that's it. He was yeah. the host of a television program on Sunday nights for, 20 years, but there were 20 years before you started watching TV. Anyway, our feeling was that we grew up, as I say, going full circle back to last week before I did the camp out in your green room, that, you know, we I saw Warner Brothers movies as a kid that had caricatures of Hollywood celebrities whom I did not know. I did not know who Ned Sparks was. I don't, I barely know who he is now, but he's the guy that talks like this. <laughs> I knew that he was the guy in the cartoons that did that. I saw Humphrey Bogart in those cartoons. I had never seen a Humphrey Bogart movie, but a coconut cream pie with this, you know, I knew that impression. I knew that a Garbo. I knew all these things. And yet they were funny on their own terms. You didn't have to know who they were to be funny. Right. And, and I, and I do think that, uh, uh, that, that sequence with the genie turning into all these different celebrities, I, I think it holds up, you know, 30 years on, it still holds up because it's funny even if, you yeah, yeah, I mean, even if you don't know who those particular people are. Yeah, I mean, people, they do not know who William F. Buckley is. <laughs> they do not. Right. Yeah. You know, there's many people that, and even, you know, a year after it came out, they didn't know. And then we did other things where we had the, I think it's still in there, but that was a question. And we had the thing where the, I don't know, is it still in the movie? I think it is where the parrot did a, da, 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 not, which was yeah. big on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but we thought it was funny. We're like, hey we're making a movie that's going to come out now. I'm not worried about 10 years from now so much. So let's just go for it. And so we did it and we never got pulled back by Jeffrey or anybody like that who said, no, it's going to date it. And, and I think as it's turned out, you know, obviously by the many iterations and by the fact that people still love the movie and love the characters, it does crazily hold up and you can miss the, you know, the, some of the specifics, but you get the general comedy and you get the, the heart there is still, and we, and you know, one of my favorite movies is Young Frankenstein, and that's a yeah. movie that has very raucous comedy in it, but it has heart, I think, with this crazy relationship of 
Gene Wilder and Peter Boyle brings really heart to, to the part. And, uh, and so that's what we were still trying to do. We were still trying to get when the genie wants to be free, that yearning, that's real. His friendship with Aladdin, that's real. And the Aladdin's romance, the poor kid romance with the rich, beautiful girl, it's real. So so we were trying to walk in the razor's edge, you know, trying to yeah. keep it real enough that you don't step away from the movie, that you feel the jeopardy is jeopardy, that you, you care about what happens to them, even though we're acknowledging it's a movie, you know, it's kind of a movie, but it's, it's a movie that, you know, it, but it invites you into it to be part of this kind of romp. And uh, that was the tone. And, and you know something, the success of the film when it opened uh, to me uh, really, it really galvanized that animation had become a date night movie. Uh, yeah, it really. Uh, it, it started on Beauty and the Beast. There was reports coming back that yeah. the theater evening shows were filling up with dates and whatnot. Yeah. And, yeah. But it really took off with Aladdin, didn't it? I think it did. Yeah, really. Well, each one expanded. I think Roger Rabbit expanded it. Beauty expanded. We expanded further. And the Lion King went went further than Aladdin in terms of box office and even helping to break down stigmas. And, uh, you know, each one uh, kind of opened the audience some more. But we, I still remember when when they had the the work in progress screening of Beauty and the Beast, which is, you know, a year before we're going to come out. And uh, um, they we were terrified because everybody, oh, we're in tears and it's the most beautiful. And we're like, we're not doing Beauty and the Beast. You know, the movie we're doing, it's a comedy. It's an unabashed comedy. Beauty and the Beast has funny things in it, but it ain't a comedy. It's a gothic romance and it's this and that. And we're like, man, we're, we're we may be in for it, but we, we bit the bullet. But the big story that I didn't tell you, of course, that I alluded to, which we interrupted myself 10 different times, was, was the Black Friday that we had where we showed the movie to Jeffrey Katzenberg, that screening, and he showed we saw the whole movie and then we went, and Ron and I had a celebratory margarita at El Torito's over on Riverside when there wasn't. Yeah, yeah. And we came back after lunch, and Don Ernst said, Can I sit down, sit down. We came into Don Ernst's office. He said, okay, yeah, we didn't hear much from Jeffrey, but we sort of felt like, yeah, I guess it went okay. He's like, he hated it. He hated every last minute of it. You know, like, <laughs> you got to be kidding. No, he hated it. And we're like, oh, my goodness. And our stomachs just dropped out of our bodies. You know, we were just like, what are we doing? And it was right around Easter. And so we, so it was Good Friday. So he made us come back in on Good Friday because I think there was no live action business being done that day. So he had a few hours. So we went into uh, his office there and yeah, Jeffrey's office. Jeffrey's office. Yeah, yeah. And he said, guys, he was like, you know, Steven Spielberg, great filmmaker. Okay. He's making Empire of the Sun. Okay. He shoots the movie, he edits the movie. They preview the movie. They release the movie. Did anyone tell Steven Spielberg that movie didn't work? No, because he's Steven Spielberg. Well, you guys, I think of you as the Steven Spielberg of animation. And I'm here to tell you, it doesn't work, okay? It doesn't work. <laughs> and start over. And he basically sort of said, start over. And he said, and it was a year and a half before the movie was going to come out. You think of that schedule. And he's like, and you can't hold the release date over me. You know, there's a way of not making changes. You got to make changes. Uh, you're Aladdin. He's not. Jasmine's pretty good in your version, I think. She's Julia Roberts. But you're Aladdin. He's Opie. He's Opie. <laughs> <laughs> he's Opie? Okay. And uh, he's like, he doesn't measure up. You know, they don't fit in the same world. And uh, and the mother. Oh, she's she's a complete zero. 86 the mom. 86er. So out of that screening, we had to kill the mom. We got rid of her. We made out, which is typical in Disney films. 
Well, it is, but she dies. Yeah. She dies in a way that's completely off screen. This is even further than Bambi's <laughs> most. She never got there. But uh, but that meant we couldn't do "Proud of Your Boy," the song that we loved, and Howard's you know song to his own mother. I think because he had she had you know disapproved of various things he did in his life. I think so. That song had to go away. And and we're in production. I mean, we're, we've got stuff animated and things, you know, and so like, how do we do this? So among the other things we did, we, and he, and again, Jeffrey, we said, Jeffrey, but you didn't stop the projector, you know, 10 minutes in like, no, I respect you guys too much to do that. No. So like, okay. They said, but I got to tell you, all during that screening, I was working on the guest list for my wife's surprise party. <laughs> and I'm like, that's what you were doing for an hour and a half? Because, yeah, actually, that was his one comment at the end of the screening, I remember, which is funny. Well, guys, that's a lot of movie. That's what he said. That was his one-sentence review of the reels. And, of course, he hit it. So, anyway, so we were really devastated. But we were like, okay. So then we started interviewing writers to help us do a rewrite while we're trying to keep the movie going. So we interviewed a whole bunch of different writers. And out of that interview process, we interviewed Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio, who are a pair of writers, went on to write the Pirates of the Caribbean right. franchise. Yeah. They're really talented guys. They're from Santa Ana. They were high school classmates. They worked on things all the way from their high school through their college years. I don't know where they went to college even. But they uh, they had written a script on Princess of Mars that we liked. And they did some other writing. We rewrite sample scripts of different writers. And we said, yeah, we, they sent them us. They sent those to us and we liked them. So we interviewed them and they, we kind of pitched them the movie and they pitched back ideas they had for ways they thought it could be stronger. And it just seemed like we liked their ideas. They seemed like they could be easy to work with. They were young. They were, they seemed flexible. They knew animation, just a lot of pluses. And we were diving off the deep end, you know, but we, cause we hadn't done anything like this on mermaid On mermaid. There was never a big blow up like this. There were little smaller things, but never this thing would just become, common since then where you know you blow up the movie on its way to the screen I, I mean it happened on most of the films i mean to, most of to some degree or another but it had not happened on little mermaid the way this happened at all so so this is new for us so it was a shocker uh so anyway so they came in came in house they were and they would rewrite scenes we would sit there and read them with honors and maureen donnelly who was the head of development at that point i think or a creative executive and uh we'd bash things around you know we like this we don't like that and they would work with ed garment and the story guys as they were boarding things and they were pitching lines and gags and da 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 da. And it was a very fluid working relationship, but there, but there were changes that came out and then Ron has used his yardstick. And I think it's pretty true that out of the movie that you see, you know, as Aladdin, uh, about one third of that is still the movie that we showed Jeffrey about one third of it is reworked, you know, in some cases heavily from the movie that we showed Jeffrey and one third is entirely new. Okay. And, uh, so Robin remained the genie, but Aladdin had to be redesigned. The skinnier Michael J. Fox was out. He's like, guys, Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise, think Tom Cruise. Yeah. Tom Cruise was the default. And so Aladdin became a buffer, toothier guy, you know, and in the, in the rewrite of it. Um, the Proud of Your Boy went away, Humiliate the Boy went away, because one of Ted and Terry's ideas, which was a good idea, was that they thought there should only be three wishes because – then that built up stakes so that you could have this whole thing of using the final wish, you know, do you free the genie or not? So there's a tremendous weight on that that we didn't have, you know, yeah. the, that was a good idea. And when we were like, oh, we got Prince Ali. And, we, and they're like, well, we can do an umbrella wish. You know, I wish to be a prince and that can cover, you know, a hundred things. And they even, you know, to get out of the cave, how they you get out of the cave? And he kind of tricks the genie to do that. Yeah. And he's like, ah, freebie. Okay. You know, I, now I feel sheepish, you know, that whole gang. Um, so they had good ideas that way. And then, 
and they helped push Jasmine. They made, I think, Jasmine, Ron maintains the, the whole Roman holiday thing of her going out. She used to meet uh, Aladdin a whole different way. And, and in the new version, she went out into the street. She was she trying, she was more, she had more agency and she was trying to take herself, her life in her own hands. Ron says, that was his idea to sit around the marketplace. I remember Ted and Terry being heavily involved in that. So I don't know whose idea it was, but it was good, whatever idea it was, that it got her out there and Aladdin meeting her in that context when she's in disguise and her being, you know, quick on her feet too and responding to him and all that. It, it just helped things. And then the whole idea of them both feeling trapped, that was a new idea in this version that, you know, they both in their own way felt trapped by their circumstances. So they had something in common. Uh, so those, those things grew out of this. And, but, and we had discussed with uh, Howard uh, the idea of a magic carpet song, you know, a flight around the world, a dream day. And he liked that idea. And he had a very rough idea, but he didn't, he died before he had a chance to write that. Mm. So there's a question, who's going to write that song? So they gave us a list of candidates. And I think Chris Montana said, you guys should meet Tim Rice because we're starting to work with Tim on this other project and he's really good and all this. So we met with Tim, Tim kind of auditioned for us in a way. And, you know, we knew his work from Jesus Christ Superstar and all this. And he's a very affable British gentleman. And uh, so he was excited to work with Alan and kind of defer to Alan and, be part of the team. So they went off. And in that case, in the old versions, Howard always wrote the lyrics first and then Alan wrote the music generally, as far as I know. But now Alan was writing music first in some cases. And I think Tim was doing lyrics to it. So I think Alan wrote the music to a whole new world, the whole lyrical base of that. And then, and then Tim constructed lyrics to that, but we liked the song first. We thought it was a great song. And we, you know, boarded to their demo then that Alan recorded for that. But we had the issue there Jasmine, the Jasmine we hired in our version of the story, she never sang. Now she had to sing. And Linda Larkin did not sing, even though she has a very, I think, kind of musical voice. She doesn't sing. So we had to audition actresses that would sound enough like Linda Larkin. And out of that, we picked Lea Salonga, who's the great Miss Saigon on Broadway, tremendous, wonderful theatrical singer. And so she performed. And likewise, Aladdin, when once Proud of Your Boy went away, we had had all these actors auditioning who sang. And then once that went away, that was no longer a concern. Was so we hired Scott Weinger, who had a who had a very charming, easygoing manner and was very sort of charismatic, but he didn't sing either. So, uh, so we found a sound like for him too. Brad Kane, who ironically was the college roommate of Sam Levine, the director of Disney uh, <laughs> and the uh, story artist and all that. And back in New York, yeah, Sam's a fellow New Yorker too. Yeah. Uh, so Brad Kane came in and sang. So it was Brad and Leah singing a whole new world. Uh, and anyway, so, but we're, it was a, but we somehow managed to finish the movie in a year and a half, despite throwing various things out and having to reboard. We, we brought in kind of a new story team. So the old story team, because they were burned out anyway, I think. So Roger Hours helped us out in the new version. Ed Gombert worked on both versions. Kevin Harkey, I can't remember if he worked on both versions. Kevin Lima went off to other things. And, uh, Producer, so, the producer was changed out. Uh, well, yeah, the producer I mean, was not changed out. No, Don Ertz remained the producer. Oh, all the way through. No. <laughs> oh, okay. This is see now. This, yeah. If people read this on Wikipedia, you're getting it wrong. Um, no, what happened was uh, Don Ertz was the producer. He survived this, and in other circumstances, maybe they would have fired Don, but they didn't. He worked for a long time after that. But as we we're heading more toward the finish line, kind of late in the production. Peter was mad at us, Peter Schneider, who kind of ran the department, that we were making too many changes, that we were not hitting some of our quotas, you know, we're falling behind yeah. and yeah, things like that. Well, of course, this is on the heels of Roger Rabbit, which helped uh, reinvigorate the term runaway production because 
whatever that was budgeted at, it cost a way lot more yes. than it was supposed to. And, and Jeffrey was flying on a helicopter to London or whatever, and they had financial things going back and forth. And it was, people were absolutely having fits about that. So we were kind of in the wake of that, like, oh, here's another one. So Peter was getting very angry because I think he was getting yelled at, but we didn't really get yelled at about the money uh, by Jeffrey so much, but we did get yelled at by Peter, Peter would yell at us. And uh, so anyway, he got angry enough with us and just the fact that he felt like we weren't towing his financial line. He basically took on her stuff, the movie, kind of late in the project. And we said, and no, we put him on to Fantasia 2000. He did. He had a home for him. Yeah. He didn't get fired. He did win. And it was a good, and, and Don did a good job on Fantasia. He liked it. But, uh, but he did that. And he said, Amy Pell's now going to be a producer. Amy was our associate producer. Amy did a lot of good things, but we clashed with Amy at times on some things. There was yeah. stories. She wanted to fire our production designer, Richard Vanderwein, because he was very slow. But he's part of the reason that movie looks as beautiful as it is. Right. So we made allowances yeah. despite him being slow. Like he should not be fired. He should. But we had to argue that for two years. We had to say every week, "Don't fire Richard." <laughs> um, so, uh, so the idea of Amy now being our producer was a mixed bag. She would help get the movie done, but we were like, eh, "Are we going to suddenly fire Richard Vanderlyn?" Which I don't think we did. We didn't do that. But uh, but yeah. So Don Ernst. So that's why there's the co-producer credit on the movie. But Don Ernst was there you know, whatever it is, four-fifths of the way. It was just toward the finish line. Yeah. We did that, which I think was unnecessary. I think we could have gotten the movie done. And then it was, you know, I just feel like... I, I And I believe Roy felt that way, too. Roy Disney uh, felt did he? that. Yeah. It, it, was, yeah, it, wasn't, it wasn't... It was a bit Roy, harsh. It wasn't a Roy decision at all. And I right. think if you said to Roy, do you think we should do it? I think he would have said no. Right. But it was very much a Peter, you know, uh, I have to take some kind of drastic action and I can't fire those guys because then the movie's really going to fall behind. So it was <laughs> Peter's way of putting the fear of God into us, but it, it made us very angry and upset with Peter and still to this day. I mean, I like Peter, and I think he did a lot of good things. This was not on my list of good things that Peter did, though. In my right. mind, right. I, think, I think he would say, no, the proof is in the pudding. We got the movie done, yada, yada. So yeah. You got the movie done, and it opened, and it was a massive hit. <laughs> it was a massive hit, and, the, and it actually wound up, it, it was a different movie universe back then, so... Aladdin played for like six months in movie theaters, you know, yeah. and that doesn't happen anymore. And it, and even in its early going, it did well those opening weekends, but it wasn't, I can't remember what we opened against, but we opened against something that opened bigger than we did, but it played and played and played and played. So it wound up being the number one movie for 1992. If you say any movie released in 1992, what was the number one box office movie? That was Aladdin, but, right. but three quarters of that was earned in 1993 as it played yeah. forever, you know, repeat viewing, a lot of repeat views. And uh, anyway, yes, it was a hit there. It was hit around the world. It was, uh, it opened up the audience. It was, and and I I do want our listeners to know that uh, you and uh, Ron Clemens, uh, uh, your partner in crime, uh, yeah. both are in Aladdin. There, there's are. a caricatures of you uh, in a crowd scene. There are. That started the thing. We didn't put ourselves in Little Mermaid, but. Originally, there were these two guys that were flanking the Aladdin's who was looking at Prince Ahmed when he rode in to see the princess, this kind of popinjay of a suitor for uh, Jasmine that she wasn't going to be too enamored of. And there were people that spoke a few lines and were looking. And I think it was Mike, Sh I can't Sedino, Mike Sedino animator, or Mike Show, but there's a caricature of Mike Show. And then there were two people going to flank him. And at one point, I was pushing possibly to have them be Siskel and Ebert. But, uh, <laughs> but I felt like, that's not really going to work because you cannot caricature 
Roger Ebert with putting it without putting him in glasses. And we just couldn't put glasses in this movie. It was an anachron- for all the anachronisms we had, I'm like, no glasses. We can't do glasses. I'm like, forget that. <laughs> so then I can't remember whose idea it was, but then they said, well, hey, we'll put you guys in. So there are me and Ron standing on the other side of Aladdin. And we, but then the idea came at some point, you guys should do the dialogue too. So we also do the dialogue for those two. Yeah, and so you got additional voice credit. Oh so yeah. So we, we, I don't think we had a joint SAG, but we did get some tiny, we get maybe two cents every 20 years. But uh, <laughs> so, so Ron, so if you look at this kind of a portly red haired guy, and uh, that is with, with a beard, with a with beard. The beard. Beards were yeah. okay then. Yeah. yeah. You know? But he says, on his way to the palace, I suppose. And then there's sort of a tall hatchet-faced guy with a beaky nose. That's me. <laughs> Looks nothing like me. And uh, he says, another suitor for the princess. <laughs> that's, that is me and Ron with our voice. But So that started a little weird Hitchcockian tradition with us. You know, every director throws a little inside joke. So we there's characters of us in, I think, all our movies from that point onward. Uh, yeah. So in, uh, you know, in, uh, Princess and the Frog, we're in there and we're in Hercules. And we're in Treasure Planet and uh, yeah. We're Hercules, yes. So let, let, let me ask you this question because we're 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 gonna we're gonna wrap up in a moment. But I want to ask you, uh, looking back at Aladdin thirty years on, is there anything in that film that you say to yourself, "Gee, I wish I could go back and redo that or change that"? Yeah, there's always there's things in Little Mermaid that I look at like that that I feel like, oh, there's a story idea that we rushed through you know, we didn't, we didn't quite realize it. And there's things in the lab, but we did, they gave us more money in a way, not more time, but we had some time to fix some things while we we're making the movie that uh, hadn't worked as well. I'd have to really look at it again. There's nothing that I jumps to mind that I feel like, yeah. well, that was the, the, you know, I'd say there's probably more things in mermaid and in some of the other films, probably F- but, funniest, uh, funniest story. Uh, when you think of Aladdin, does anything jump to mind? Uh, I'm not, um, Boy, funniest story. Uh, that's a challenge. But one of the one of the good ideas. Because I don't want to be bad mouthing Jeffrey because he did a lot of he did a lot of good things and he had some good ideas. One of the good ideas that Jeffrey had, he um, when when we had uh, Robin Williams record for the genie uh, and record for the peddler at the beginning, you know we had dialogue that I had written pretty much and some of the runner in, but a lot of it was me and uh, and Robin initially recorded that or maybe we just did scratch and but. But for whatever reason, Jeffrey really didn't like, no, it was Robin too, I think. And he felt that it sounded kind of flat and it didn't really go. He said, guys, this is what you got to do. He's a peddler, right? On the soundstage, put all these props on the soundstage, cover them up with the blanket, which is what they used to do on the Jonathan Winters show, another famous improv and an idol of Robin Williams. Just do that and then uncover it with Robin at the microphone and he'll just riff, he'll pick up these things and he'll try and sell them to you and just have a weird motley collection of things so that's what we did. We used Jeffrey's idea. We did that. And he did a lot of, so his whole thing, you know, the little sort of throwaway stuff, Julian Fries, you know, all his rants were based on real things, real props that he had there. And it was, it was really fun. And it, he was really good. And uh, uh, I've, I've seen, I have seen recently uh, a fun, it's not really a funny thing, but it was one of the last sessions of Robin where he, uh, he was doing stuff and he was, just doing all sorts of stuff. And he did this great stuff where he, at the, at the end of the movie, when Aladdin has come, snuck into the Jafar's throne room where he's now the Sultan and, and Jasmine is kind of his slave and, and Aladdin's trying to turn the tables on him and, and the genie sees him, Al, Al, you're there, whoa, you're there. And then, but Al's, Aladdin's like, quiet, quiet. 
He's like, you want me to shut up? Oh yeah, I'll shut up. You want me to shut up? I'll shut up like no one's ever shut up. Oh, you want to see some shut up? I'll shut up. And he kind of did a whole thing where he, <laughs> you know, he did like a 10 minute riff of doing a drawbridge, lifting up his mouth and doing this whole thing. And he just did hilarious stuff one after the other. Da, 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 da. And, and then finally at the end of that session, I've seen a videotape of the session, Robin's session. At the end, we're like, well, we're great, Robin. Is there, is there anything else you, you want to try or anything to do? Like, no, yeah, nothing. Uh, not for another year. That's it. I'm done. <laughs> and he just kind of, he laughed and he kind of walked off. And that was sort of, in a way, our goodbye with Robin on the project. A little bit. Uh, a, a funny story for us, but not for you. It's a Jeffrey story again, but it's a good one. And I know we're going to run over. And you can probably cut out later if you want. But the day we have the CalArts premiere at the El Capitan Theater, where it's a benefit for CalArts. Mm-hmm. Celebrities come in the morning, Sunday morning, bring their kids. That morning, a big promotional piece on the movie appears in the calendar section. It's the big piece. And writer, writer came and interviewed Ron and I. Our names in the article are John Clements and Ron Musker. In the LA Times. <laughs> Times oh. Millions of copies out there. And nobody cares except the two of us. But we're like, can you believe that? Don't they have fact checkers? Don't <laughs> journalism, what has it come to? Anyway, so now we go to the to the El Cap. And here's Jeffrey introducing the movie. We're not introducing the movie. Jeffrey's in it. That's fine. Jeffrey, you're introducing the movie. Okay. And, you know, here's, and this is really the brainchild. I want to thank the two directors, John Clements and Ron Musker, for their work on this movie. He said our names wrong the same way they were in the LA Times. Because I, I really, all the time we were working for him, I, I swear I know this to be true. He never totally knew which one was John, which one was John. And he, he really didn't. I, I have a, so another story where I tried to force him into admitting that he didn't know my name, and I got proof, and I can share that with you if you like. But he, but basically, when after the movie's over, we're doing the big thing in the in the back, you know, in the back forty there with the games, and all. He said, "Jeffrey, you got our names wrong." I said, "No, I didn't." I said, "Yes, you did." You said, "John," and we told him the story about the other time. I have little doubt that he was reading. You know, he kind of he's Jeffrey. He's reading the coverage on. And he's like, that's, that's it. Okay, yeah, that's it. I thought I had something else in my head. But yeah, okay, that's it. So I think he made a point to get the names right, like they were in the LA Times. So yeah. he echoed that. And then Jeffrey, you've worked with us for 10. Well, at that point, he'd worked with us for however many years it was. And he still, well, I worked with him for 10 years. And even at the end of the 10 years, I don't think he knew my name. So that's a little bit yeah. Well, that, that's a great story to, to uh, end our interview on, uh, John. Uh, and I got to say, uh, it was a pleasure having you on the Skull Rock uh, podcast. Uh, and I know we're going to have you come back because we can have you back multiple times to talk about <laughs> any getting paid more and more money, any number of, uh, well, we're, we're going to put premium uh, okay. beverages and okay. snacks in the green room for you. Top okay. shelf, okay. only top yeah. shelf. Well, once we have the green room, tent you'll give me, you'll give me bug, bug spray. This time. <laughs> That's sure. right. We're, we're going to have, we're going to have the green room taken care of. Uh, but anyway, uh, John, uh, I almost called you Ron. Finch, you worked with us for 10 years and would still call me Ron. After working with Ron Milano for three years, he'd say, no, Ron. I'm like, James, I went to Tahiti with you. I'm not Ron. I'm not. John, it, it was an absolute pleasure having you on the Skull Rock podcast. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Al John. And thank you, listeners. Dave, you just hang out with some of the coolest guys. I mean, John Musker <laughs> you know, John, is just cool yeah, as a cucumber. Yeah, he's, he's terrific, isn't he? He's great. You know, I mean, having Don in for last week's show, and then you've got John in for this this week's vault show. It's uh, 
it just seems to be a really, really fun group of people you worked with over the years. It, it really uh, has been, and it's so great to be able to get together with these guys uh, periodically and and talk about uh, you know the history and uh, reminisce a little bit. Uh, but we do hope everybody had a fantastic new year. And Al John and I will be back next week with a brand new show to kick off 2023. Enjoy. See you then. I'm Al John Go, co-host of the Disney List podcast as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock Podcast, here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times. So they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money. Where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next Disney cruise, Disney park trip, Adventures by Disney? They can contact me at themeparksandcruises at gmail.com. I'm Kristen Hetzel, vacation planner, world traveler, Disney foodie, and theme park fan. I'm Al John Go. I'm the husband who's also Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel Comics fan. And together, we host a Disney List podcast. Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list, rankings, and more. That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. You can even stream us on Sorcerer Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook, the Disney List podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com.